I hope you've been enjoying the distribution. I want to hear from you. Please go to the link in the show description to provide your feedback on the topics and guests you would like to hear from. I appreciate your time and hope to keep giving you more of the conversations you enjoy. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with John Burns, founder and CEO of John Burns Research and Consulting, an independent research and consulting firm serving the U.S. housing industry. John has been covering the U.S. housing market since 2001 and provides comprehensive consulting services to leading home builders, private equity firms, sell-side analysts, and most recently, owners and operators of single-family rentals and build-to-rent products. During our conversation, we discuss how the single-family rental housing market has evolved since 2012, the data points that his team uses to monitor supply and demand, how immigration and policy are creating both opportunities and challenges, and the impacts of higher interest rates and the volatility in the mortgage market. Few people know as much about the residential market as John and his team do, and I've had the pleasure of knowing John since 2005. In many ways, today's volatile conditions remind me of the run-up to the great financial crisis, and as John and I discuss, it's back to the future. Let's get into it. Thanks for joining me today, John. It's great to see you. Good to you, Brandon. It's been a while. Great. Well, I like to have all my guests start by introducing themselves and give us a little bit of background on your firm as well to set the context for today's conversation. I started the company 22 years ago to figure out what's going on in the housing market for primarily home builders, and it's morphed to rental landlords, building products, companies, hedge funds, private equity. No, the commercial real estate industry is super sophisticated and the residential was not as sophisticated, so we, we took advantage of that. and We've become everybody's outside research shop, if you will. And then we also have a pretty large consulting business that does about 900 consulting studies a year. Great. And just to help our listeners understand, you know, the, the you, you go, did you rebrand the company? Is it JBREC or is it John Burns Real Estate Consulting still? Uh, we rebranded it from John Burns Real Estate Consulting to John Burns Research and Consulting because we're expanding the business. I mentioned building products. They don't really consider themselves real estate. We've got a lot of other clients too who whose livelihoods are dependent on the health of the housing market. And how about the size and scale of firm? And, you know, are you a remote first company, an office-based company where are you headquartered and kind of give us that lay of the land? Yeah, we've always been a people first company and I don't believe the best people work within commute distance from my office. So we've been, uh, well, we, we've allowed people to work wherever from our researchers. Our consultants are more strategically located in the key markets around the country. So all the major housing markets, we have somebody who's a local housing market expert. So we were on Zoom for years before COVID hit. So it was a pretty easy transition for us. Yeah. And I remember you have, you call your employees pals, right? Is, am I getting that right? What, is, what does that mean? Because I remember you have a pretty cool philosophy as it relates to how you think about, you know, the people that work with you. Well, the acronym PAL stands for passionate, articulate, likable, and smart. We really want people that, are, that love what they're doing. You have to be great communicators to be in our business. Likable means people have to enjoy working with you, which means you have to deliver the promises and things on time. And we hold a very high bar for smart. We don't want first-level thinkers. We want second-level thinkers. And people enjoy working with people like that. It's worked really well for us. And most of the people that work at your organization come from within, you know, the 
kind of the, the traditional research industry or real estate industry? What's a typical background of somebody who would come work for you and kind of grow up in the organization? It's all over the place. We have, we have a very robust intern program where we test drive people for the summer and then we bring them on full time. We usually have about 12 interns and maybe hire full time half of them. Our research business has morphed a lot to people with tech backgrounds. So it does not have to have a industry background. We just hired somebody from Amazon, for example. Our consultants tend to come from the real estate industry. They, they tend to be local market experts or super knowledgeable about real estate. So it varies. Got it. So we first met each other, I don't know, maybe 2005, 2006 during, you know, what was an incredible housing boom just before the GFC. But before we talk about kind of the evolution of the housing market, you mentioned earlier that, you know, the commercial real estate markets historically have been very sophisticated. When you entered the business, the residential markets may be less so. What were you doing before the founding of your company? Like, talk to us a little bit about how, how you know, John Burns, the research real estate businesses came to be. Yeah, so I, I started my career as a CPA, then went back to grad school, and then went to work for KPMG, Pete Marwick at the time, in their consulting division. So I did eight years there in their real estate consulting practice. And that's where I really learned how to really pay attention to what's going on in the market because the commercial real estate folks are really good at that. The residential folks were more cowboys. Let's do deals on the back of a napkin. If you give me some money, I'll build something. I'll make a fortune, then I'll give it all back. To be fair, it's harder when you're buying a piece of land, building on it and selling it every three years than it is when you own an office building or an apartment forever. And there are more variables, more it's more consumer-oriented, which is harder. So we took those principles. And when I started the business, it was like, can you go find some data to figure out what's going on? Now it's more like you're drinking from a fire hose of data. Can you figure out what's right and what's wrong and synthesize it for me? It is amazing, the prolifer proliferation of data. So we'll, we'll come back to how you use that in your business. But I think, you know, just a level set, when we're thinking about the housing markets and we'll put the, you know, we can, we can bring building materials in a little bit because I think it's interesting, especially, you know, when we look back at what happened during COVID and the impact that that had on the housing markets, but help our listeners just understand through your lens as someone who studied this space very closely for, you know, over 20 years, how would you describe kind of like the broad brush trends that we've seen in the housing markets? Like, you know, what's the story version of housing in the U.S. over the last kind of 30, 40 years time period? Short answer is it's very cyclical and every cycle seems to be pretty different. You know, interest rates impact every market in the country. Job growth impacts markets differently. Like the, we had a recession in 2000, 2001, but that was very San Francisco specific. Texas really was uninvolved. Policy matters a lot. There was a rule, basically a rule against uh, high LTV cash out mortgages in Texas. So they didn't do as much of the stupid lending or crazy lending, I should say, as others. And so, and, and there was not that rule in Atlanta. So Atlanta got crushed during the great financial crisis with all the subprime lending and Texas came out of it very differently. So it's, it's a combination of a lot of things, Brandon. And when did we start to see, you know, you and I started, you know, like I said, probably 2005-ish and in the context of our original engagement was, you know, I was working with some investors, you know, Wall Street types who are interested in understanding what's, ha what's happening in the housing market. Kind of when did the institutionalization of housing take place and kind of how, how has that, you know, played out over the last 
few, you know, I guess, last well, decade or so. Yeah, at that time, hedge funds were looking for an edge. So, you know, the sell side analysts were good at calling what was going on with the earnings, but they really didn't know what was going on in markets around the country. We were very good at that. We got published in a paper in Wall Street that was very famous and we were cited throughout it. So people read that paper and started calling me and that, that took us into the hedge fund business. But I think you're alluding to the institutional investment, which really got going around 2012. I've got a great story on how that started, if you, if you want. Yeah, tell us. Um, how'd that start? So February 2009, that was about five months after Lehman Brothers blew up. I could tell that you know they were doing tax credits. They were doing all this stuff. They didn't, Congress didn't know what they were talking about. So I met this guy who was the lobbyist for the Treasury. And I didn't know that the Treasury had lobbyists, but they do. And he was like, man, you really know what's going on in the market. Let me take you around town. So I went back to Washington, D.C., and his name's King Mueller. He, he took me around town, and I met with all the government agencies just to give them some information about what was going on. I still have that deck. I should find it. The most memorable meeting I had was at HUD with Rafael Bostic, who was the number two person at HUD. Now he's on the Fed. And... We were talking about what's going to happen here. Where the home prices are going to fall. The FHA is going to foreclose on everybody and then turn around and provide rental assistance to everybody. It's like, this makes no sense. And so it was his idea who said, well, we should, we should really just keep these people in their house and rent it out to them. Yeah, but the government can't do that. That's just too politically tough. Can you go find some money that did? So I went to my clients at Wall Street, one of which made the, uh, had the one-year earnings record because he had shorted the mortgage securities. Another one who was uh, played by Steve Carell in a movie. <laughs> These guys had made a ton of money and wanted to get on the other side of the trade. And so Capital was very interested in this at the time, but HUD just couldn't get their act together. So three years later, uh, American Homes for Rent, you know, the guy who started public storage starts buying. Actually, the year before that, the Waypoint guys, which became Starwood, which became Colony America, which became Invitation Homes, started buying. Blackstone got in, as you know, and it was just, hey, these homes are so below replacement cost. And there's so many different vehicles that we can get out of this, either selling them one by one or turning them into a big income portfolio. This is a no-brainer. And so when they started getting into it, we were the first call because we, we'd been running around and we were, we were a big proponent of this idea. And man, there was no data on how to do that right. <laughs> we had to figure it out. Yeah, and just to confirm, when you say get into it, you're talking about single, that was the emergence of the single family rental housing market as we know it today. Exactly, exactly. And so that was 2012. It's now, you know, almost a, a little over a decade later, 2023, when we're recording this, you know, kind of what has happened over the last 10 years in the SFR build to rent markets? Tremendous price recovery. Uh, the thesis of buying below replacement costs worked out. And then we got to a point where, wait a minute, I'm buying at replacement cost. If you're, you're sticking to your thesis, you would just stop. And what they have learned is that, you know, we, we're really onto something here. There's more than 12 million people that rent a single family home. Nobody has a chance to rent from a well-known landlord, you know, have somebody with a call center. And what came later was live in a community of all renters. And so they started building rental homes. And that's been a big part of our growth the last few years is this whole built trend as well, which I'm a, a huge believer in that it's going to have very long legs. With the spike in interest rates, it's not 
as easily financially feasible right now, but the consumer demand is very strong. So let's assume for a moment that our listeners, you know, are either living under a rock or only consuming information from the headlines of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, which would lead one to believe that, you know, the institutionalization of the housing market is the worst thing to happen to housing and the American consumer. Let's spend maybe five, seven minutes unpacking that and kind of what's the more research-driven kind of boots on the ground consumer oriented perspective of what's actually happening and how this is or isn't impacting housing stock, pricing, et cetera. I'd love for you just to kind of give us a bit of a masterclass here. Okay, well, I can do that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so politically popular to bash Wall Street and you get such clickbait to do it too. But here, here's the math. So of those 12 million detached, about 15 million if you include attached homes, 3% of them are owned by are companies that own a thousand or more homes, and another three percent are owned by those that own between a hundred and ninety-nine. So call that institution if you want six six percent ownership. There are some markets like Atlanta and Charlotte where it is much higher than that, low teens, I believe. And there are certain zip codes, particularly in Charlotte, that the New York Times did focus on where there were periods where more than half of the homes bought in those certain zip codes were by those groups. So there is an element of truth to this in those certain zip codes that were fi fitting everybody's buy box where they wanted to be and they wanted to get scale. But this was not really a, a national problem. And that story has completely changed, by the way. They've been selling more homes than they've been buying lately. So you don't see those headlines anymore. Interesting. And so, so it sounds like, you know, the headlines are the institutional ownership of single family rentals are still extraordinarily low as a percentage of the total housing stock. And I, that's why I'm so bullish on it. Yeah, why, why if you live in Birmingham, Alabama and you wanna rent a home, do you have to rent from somebody you've never heard of? Why, why not get the opportunity to rent from a company that you can vet where you're in a neighborhood with all renters? Because we have a subsidiary called the New Home Trends Institute that does a lot of consumer research. Renters feel a little unwanted on a street with a lot of homeowners. And so there, there actually is some consumer desire to be around other renters. You know, there's a lot of NIMBYs that don't want to see these communities built. You know, they, they do generate more traffic. I will acknowledge that. But the renters that go in them are, are pretty high income. Professional companies maintain the homes just like professional apartment companies do. And I think the world is starting to figure that out now that, hey, this isn't some slumlord that's going to build a dump. These are like the, top, the largest publicly traded REITs. Their average income of their tenant is close to $120,000 and their median rent is above 2000 bucks. These are high quality people with good incomes who have not given up on the dream of home ownership. The major, vast majority of them want to own a home at some point. They're just like, Hey, we're saving for a down payment. Hey, I just moved to Atlanta and I've got a lot of stuff and three kids and I want to rent for a year or two. That That's the typical template. And when you look at the kind of the the demand for this type of product, what is the kind of demo? You talked a little bit about the the kind of economic profile of a renter, but what, you know, what is the kind of demographic data tell us about the type of person who's interested in the rental rental housing versus home ownership right now. 
So there are some of the large publicly traded home builders that are building for sale and for rent communities that are almost identical right next to each other. And the tenants look identical. I mean, there, there are people who want to live in a house for whatever reason. They've got a dog or they've got kids and they just want a garage. There are some products in built to rent that are more like cottage apartments that, that are cottage homes. I think they look a little bit more like apartments or, or singles because they're 800 square feet. So you have to, you have to look at the product segmentation here a little bit. And, and just for our listeners, when we talk about what is the difference between SFR and, you know, we, we hear a lot about SFR and then we hear about build to rent. What are the, you know, what's the difference between those two categorizations? Because, you know, they're both rental housing, correct? Yeah. But SFR, we refer to it as scattered homes, which is easier to think about. And build to rent is more like a rental community of contiguous homes. So the scattered homes, I mean, these guys figured out how to manage thousands of homes that were built by different people, different years, all age, all different roof issues, different CapEx issues, different appliances. <laughs> it's so much easier to have 75 homes that are all the exact same right next to each other. The, the built to rent is much easier to manage. They figured out the hard stuff first. And so build to rent is effectively purpose built. Is that, is that it's, it's to- easy it, way to think? Yes, it's totally, it's the best of them are intended to be rent from day one. Some of them are intended to be sold and then they end up being rentals. But there are some subtle differences in there. Like if you're, if you're going to have a rental home, there's going to be a lot of turnover in it more than in a house. So you want or durable materials. You don't want a lot of carpets. You actually want wider stairwells for moving things up and down the stairs. There are, there are material differences and design differences they prefer in rental homes. Interesting. So before, you know, before we get too deep into this, the traditional kind of public home builder, you know, you buy dirt, you entitle it, you, you go vertical or I guess horizontal, you know, how are those players still around and kind of what's happening in the traditional for sale kind of new home market that we talked a lot about in 2005 to 2012 as the the public builders were on the way up and taking their lumps on the way down. The public builders are absolutely positively killing it. They're doing phenomenal. Their margins are near all-time highs. They are completely different companies than in 2006. They they borrowed from Wall Street at very low rates years ago. They have very little debt. Their balance sheets are pristine. They're very well-run companies. And the cowboys I was talking about that would buy land and make a lot of money and give it all back, that is not, these, these, that's the reputation, that's the old reputation. The new reputation is a, is a really, really, really well-run company. And you can look at their stock prices They'll complain about their stock prices because they're pretty low multiples on book and earnings. But if you've been a shareholder there this entire time, you've done very, very well. How do you think about, you know, what are some of the data points that you're tracking in the kind of traditional home builder market? I mean, it, it seems like with the current market environment, my understanding, which is very nascent, is that kind of the, the number of new home starts in an environment like this will typically dip down fairly substantially, which would mean less supply. What does the data show you or kind of, how would you edit my, my thinking here? Yeah, so there's, this is very unique. So, we, for, you know, we have 40 years of basically falling interest rates 
And we'd always talked about, well, if interest rates go up, what's going to happen? Well, probably a lot more people are going to stay in their house. It's even more significant than I thought. I mean, this 80% of America, well, first of all, 40% of homeowners don't even have a mortgage. There's a lot of older people that have paid it off. The other 60%, 80% of them have a rate below five and 60% have a rate below four. That is a huge financial incentive to stay in place. And so what that has caused is that if, if you or I were going to move somewhere, there's not a lot of homes on the market to purchase except the new homes. So the, the home builders are usually about 14 to 15% of the homes available for sale. They're close to 30 right now. So that's one of the reasons why they're successful is they've got a home you can buy. But that doesn't eliminate the challenge around interest rates, which, you know, at the time of recording in November of 2023 are at 20-year record highs. I mean, is the demand from the consumer still there given this higher interest rate environment that we're in? There is, and that has been the big surprise. So if, if you just ask someone, hey, in three years, if home prices go up 50% and then mortgage rates more than double, what do you think will happen? <laughs> They'd say, well, boy, nobody's going to be able to afford a house. And, and that is what it looks like. There's far more wealth creation. I mean, in that same time period, 65% of America owns their home. They saw their equity in their home go up 50% or more. Those same people tend to be in the stock market. That's gone up 50% or more in the last five years. So there's just a ton of wealth out there. And we're seeing, and I got some stats from a public builder who shared this with me recently, about 30% of their entry-level buyers are getting some sort of family assistance at some point. So, and entry-level is about a third of the market. So say about 10% of the buyers out there are getting some sort of assistance. We're getting a lot of anecdotes on that too. The other thing, and then I, I'll give a shout out to one of my clients, Taylor Morrison, Cheryl Palmer, and the head of mortgage, Tom Kelly, where they were getting asked years ago about what happens when rates go up. Tom was actually checking to see if they would still qualify. And she said, most of our buyers, can, we could still qualify them if rates went up 3 or 4%. And most people were, really? That's really hard to believe. And here we are, and they're right. But not everybody can. So they're using some of the tremendous profits they have from the tremendous appreciation to buy down people's mortgage rates, which has been a huge selling tool. So you can buy, even though the market right now, Brandon, is about 75 to 8% for a mortgage, there's a lot of new homes where you can get a fixed 5.5% mortgage right now because basically the home seller, which is the builder, is subsidizing, making a huge upfront cash payment to get you that favorable mortgage rate. And out of curiosity, that's fascinating. I had no idea. And out of curiosity of those, what's the what's a typical term on, you know, the seller buy down? Yeah, it costs them about 1% of the mortgage amount to buy down the interest rate a quarter of a point. So a typical buy down is, is 6%. We'll buy it down 1.5% permanently. I do think, you know, the yield curve is inverted right now. So there's some wonky things going on in the bond market. And they're assuming that person will probably refinance pretty soon because everyone's expecting rates to go down. I don't think this is a permanent part of the market. Interesting. Is there a risk 
in kind of this leading to more, you know, to some of the single, I, I guess it's maybe not even a risk, but is there a potential for this to lead to kind of further institu- acceleration of the institutionalization? Can some of these new build communities be converted almost immediately at time of sale to rental housing or are there covenants or, or other things that typically prevent that from happening? No, they can be, there's no, there's nothing to stop a homeowner from renting out the home. You know, when you try to do a build to rent community, you, you do need to go into the city and, and state your intentions. So there, that's a little bit, maybe I'm overstating how easy it is. But the home builders have been selling. I know one of them has been disclosing pretty publicly that it, every quarter it's about 10 to 12% of their homes they're building, they're selling to institutionals, institutions that rent it out. That has slowed down though, because the they were happy with a 4 to 5% yield a few years ago. And now they're looking for a six to seven percent yield, and it just isn't penciling. Yeah. So when you look at the single family housing market writ large, kind of what are the leading indicators that you're looking for that'll help kind of instruct where you know the market might be over the next you know twelve months, thirty six months, or even further out, call it you know sixty months. Kind of how do you how do you and the research team think about gathering all these different data inputs to help your clients understand what might be coming down the pike? Well, we look at demand and supply two completely different ways. So there, there's one, which is the need for shelter, and there's the one for the number of people that are buying and selling. So the need for shelter, the demand side of it is job growth, and the supply side of it is really how much housing we've got or how much housing we're building. And there's an undersupply from a shelter standpoint. We did a huge white paper on this for our clients about a year ago. There's a large undersupply, but prices have adjusted for that. So I don't think you should just hang your hat on, hey, home prices are going to be fine and rents are going to be fine. They've adjusted for the undersupply. The other piece of it, though, is how many people are out there looking to move, either buy or to rent, versus how much choice do they have? And that side of the market is demand is down. The people, number of people looking to move has fallen pretty substantially, but the supply is down even more. And they're, they're pretty much in equilibrium and we're running at about flat home prices right now. And in the rental market, this has been the biggest surprise the last few months. The, the rental demand has slowed at the same time that a lot of rental supply is being finished. Apartments are being finished and put on the market. And we're starting to see some significant softening in the rental market, which to me, Brandon, is the leading indicator for a recession. Now, I don't want to say there's a recession, but it, I've been doing this a long time. And job weakness tends to show up in the apartment market before it shows up in the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers. So we're watching this pretty carefully. Yeah. And when you're talking about seeing rental, the rental market softening, you're talking about single family housing, or are you also tracking what's happening in multi? No, two, two publicly traded apartment REITs just reported that year-over-year rents are down. So this is not this is not me prognosticating. This is what's going on. And you drill down into it; it's very submarket specific. It's usually correlated to some place where a new supply, a lot of supply opened up. But I, I think there's some softening in household formations too. And despite what's happening in the macro environment, I mean, job growth has been strong. I mean, we're recording this on a day that the markets are ripping on the back of some numbers that recently came out. I mean, how do you make sense of, you know, what's happening in the labor market, at least, you know, what we see in the headline numbers against what's actually happening in the rental market from a demand perspective? 
Well, we wrote a book on this seven years ago, and what is playing out is we're running out of people to employ. I mean, we're down at a three and a half percent unemployment rate, which is super tight. The number of people retiring every year is about the same number of people that are graduating from high school and college. So the only growth is going to come from immigration, and we know how controversial that is. But that's at some point here, we think the job market has gone to slow unless everybody starts employing a lot of immigrants, which a lot of them have made it across the border, as you know, but it's, there's a lot of laws that prevent you from employing them. I don't have good data on how many people are flying in here from other countries, but anecdotally, that number seems pretty high to me. I think that's where the job growth is coming, is from uh, immigrants coming in on airplanes. You use the R word for recession. I had a guest on an earlier podcast that said, you know, we're not calling for recession, but we think it's the weighted average of when Beyonce, Madonna, and Taylor Swift's world tour ends, because she was talking about the amount of the economic impact that, you know, in the consumer, discretionary consumer spending that we're seeing through the roof, highlighted by the fact that, you know, these three amazing female artists can sell out their world tours at extremely premium prices. But what do you make of like the strength of the American consumer and the credit worthiness? Because, you know, you look at some of the data that comes out around credit card debt and, you know, household debt, and it's, it's kind of scary. How does that tie out to, you know, the credit worthiness of the renter and just the ability of these individuals to be able to afford housing in America today? It is very clear to me that we've become even more of a society of haves and have nots. I, I, I mentioned that 65% that own their home. I mean, clearly, if you've been owning your home for five years, you're a half. <laughs> if you're lucky enough to be a renter who's related to one of those who can help you out, you're a half. And there was $1.7 trillion in excess savings during COVID between all the stimulus money and then the lack of spending. That's down to about a trillion now. So there's still a lot of, there's still more money than usual on in entirety and on average in people's checking account. Brandon. Some of those people are also ramping up their consumer credit cards because that's what they do. And then there's the have-nots, which have been forced to ramp up their, their credit cards, you know, but they're not out buying homes right now. They're not actually, you know, leasing homes either. They're just praying that the rent hikes are going to stop, which they're finally starting to stop. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue to, to interest rates. I mean, yeah, we're in a at least what today seems like a higher for longer interest rate environment. What's your kind of house view or what are you advising your clients as it relates to the likelihood that rates either stay the same, go up, come down? I know, you know, nobody knows for certain, obviously, but what's your kind of best guess on interest rates and the impact that it's going to have on the housing market? I'm going to say we're not smart enough to forecast interest rates. I don't I'm say maybe nobody else is either because they've been wrong. We just had Jim Grant from Grant's Interested Observer at our conference two weeks ago. He made a very compelling case that this is higher for longer. I think you can also make a case that, you know, a lot of the government deficit now is going to be interest expense. So there's a lot of pressure to get rates down for that reason. And if we do have a recession, rates will come down. So at the end of the day, we look at the futures on the bond market. Mortgage rates trade over the 10-year. Futures are saying... 10 years should fall about 50 to 75 basis points over the next two years. And so I'm not smarter than that. I say mortgage rates should trade down the same, maybe a little more, because mortgage rates are at a higher than usual premium over the 10 year right now. 
what is higher than usual. So what is the premium over the 10-year that would constitute, quote-unquote, normal or usual? I mean, it's fluctuated a lot, but the historical average is 170 basis points or 1.7% above the 10-year treasury rate. It's up about 2.7% right now. I think the new norm is about 2.0% going forward because the Dodd-Frank put in a lot of extra servicing costs. But just like anything, it's impacted by demand and supply. And the Fed was the big buyer of mortgage-backed securities. They were buying a quarter of all the mortgages made in America to buy down the mortgage rate during the stimulus period and even pre-stimulus. They started doing that the great financial crisis that never stopped, which made no sense to me. And they've stopped buying. So a quarter of the demand for mortgages pulled out of the market. And that's, I think that's why that premium is higher than usual. And then the banks were big demand too. And, and the banks are not buying mortgages right now either because they've been hurt on their mortgage portfolios recently. So who is, I mean, do we think it's the Fed? Do we think it's banks are going to come back into the market? Or is there a new buyer of mortgages that are going to emerge all, uh, you know, what we saw in the run up to 2007? I've been told it's hedge funds, which are very volatile buyers. They buy them all on Monday and sell them all on Tuesday. So that's why you have some volatility in the mortgage market. What's old is new. (laughs) Fascinating. Gosh, it's a throwback. Interesting. So you talked a little bit about what's happening in the mortgage market, but you you mentioned something earlier that I want to come back to, which is the we're at kind of full employment or or, you know record levels of of employment. Immigration is obviously the prickly subject and it's it's not happening fast enough to drive the growth. So if the labor market slows and immigration policy stays the same, what does that say for the demand for housing? And kind of how do you think, and you mentioned earlier also that we're undersupplied, right? We don't, we need to build more housing based on the demand, but like, where do we, do you have a sense of where we hit equilibrium or, you know, what is your projection for the the right level? What do we need to do to close the, housing gap in this country to have quote-unquote affordability and kind of operate at a, at a relative place of equilibrium? I think there was about 10 questions in there. So let me... This yep. is we, we, can, we can unpack them, yeah. We think our calculus at the number, we're undersupplied by about 1.79 homes. And we, we looked at that by looking at the vacancies by market and also the number of adults per household by age cohort by market. And we triangulated to that number. There's been a wonky thing that's happened here is a lot of homes have converted to hotels with Airbnb. So you've got to figure out, are, are those, those aren't available for people to rent permanently. So that's part of the challenge. I'm trying to remember everything else that was in your, your question there. Yeah, so there's 1.7 million home vacancies. It, it, did I get that right? There's 1.7 home vacancies. How are you defining a vacancy? Yeah. Nobody's living it. There's fewer vacancies than you would expect. So is it fair to say that 1.7 is the number of homes that we would that we would need to create in order to have a equilibrium of supply and demand? Yes. That's our shortage. So that's a nice tailwind for the housing market. The other thing you, you talked about the, that's a headwind and a tailwind is immigration. So you know, the less immigration we have, the less housing demand, obviously. But uh, but also, I think the less severe the recession could be. Because for the first time ever, we're going through a period where baby boomers are retiring. And, and so for decades, when you and I met, there were about 4 million people coming into the workforce every year and about 2 million people retiring every year. Now that number is like 4.2 and 4. 
So we're, we're really not growing the number of people that are in the um, working years. In the past, when we had a recession and you're adding 2 million people to the market every year, unemployment can spike. But when you're not adding hardly anybody to the market, unemployment won't spike. And I, I do think if we do have a recession here, you may very well be talking about unemployment that really doesn't increase that much. So that, that would help things. I mean, that's a that's a massive shift in terms of the people leaving the market every year, retiring. Is that playing out in kind of the requirements or the demands from that population in terms of housing? I would imagine seniors housing and, you know, skilled nursing and kind of, you know, the, the medical side of housing is is booming or or are we seeing a different pattern in terms of multi-generational living? What's kind of the data show you? Yeah, uh, it, it was a slow, gradual move from 2 million people retiring to 4 million people. That's That's been happening over a couple decades here. The baby boom started in 1946. So about when you and I met, they were turning 60 and the very first ones. And so it's really the last 15 years or so, there's been solid growth there. They're very much concentrated in that 40% of homeownership, homeowners, I told you, who don't have a mortgage. So they're most of them are not moving. And while some are going to the traditional retirement areas like Florida, for sure, this generation, and we covered it in the book we wrote in, in 2006, is more the amenity they want in retirement is being near their kids and grandkids. So if the kids and grandkids got a job in Phoenix or Dallas, hey, we're retiring in Phoenix and Dallas. Interestingly, that's been a big driver of built to rent, too, is people are like, we're going to go to Dallas and try it out because the kids are there and they're rent- renting homes. Or they're helping the kids with a down payment to stay close to them. So there's been a societal shift there. Interesting. And have you seen, I remember a few years ago, there was a big kind of discussion around kind of multi-generational living and the need for more flexible housing. I think it may have been, I I don't even know who was putting it out. I mean, are you seeing kind of multi-generational families co-locate under one roof or is it more the co-locator or you know, live in the same city, like the example you just gave with, you know, move to a new city, try it out, rent a house. We are, but it is not as big as most people thought it would be. I mean, people still like, I want mom and dad down the street, not in the house. That's kind of a better way of saying it. With, with certain ethnic groups in certain areas, it's very different. They're, they, they look, they feel the opposite. It's like, well, of course you live with your parents and help them in the retirement years. So, there is an ethnic cultural answer to that question. So on one, one other thing I should mention, though, the state of California now is really pushing these accessory dwelling units, which can be like a, a box in the back of the house, or they can be something really nice. And so we, we are seeing more and more of that as a way for a family member to live with the rest of the family, but have their some of their own yeah, as a resident of California, I can attest to the big ADU push. Every uh, you know, every lot around the street has an ADU. It seems like these days, so that's fascinating. So if we if we switch gears and we look forward a little bit in terms of kind of what we kind of what we see, I mean, if you look through your crystal ball, I mean, what do you expect is going to happen over the next twelve months in the housing markets writ large? Well, you need to have a call on the economy to have an opinion, and. I'm not really an economist, but we read all the economic information we can get. And and I talk to a lot of smart people. And other than what's going on in the commercial real estate sector, 
And I would say the tech sector, although the, it's the, the legacy tech sector here that's kind of struggling, but there's a new AI tech sector that's, that's kind of booming. And the financial sector, the banking sector, the rest of the economy seems like they're doing fine. And I keep asking for who's in trouble. I mean, Jim, Jim Grant talks about this. It was, it's not the fact that the Fed is at five. It's the fact that the Fed was at zeros for years and then moved to five and caused all this high-risk lending or low interest rate lending, I'm more in the camp that something's going to blow up. And, and I l- listened to Jamie Dimon talk that way, the CEO of JP Morgan, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, have all kind of talked like they know something that you and I don't, but I can't find it. So I've gone with the uh, soft landing scenario, but like they get the person you talked to earlier, I've got my guard up that there could be another Lehman Brothers or two or three or four out there, given what happened to interest rates. I just don't know who they are. You don't think it could be the uh, the regional banks with their massive exposure to commercial real estate in the zero interest rate environment for the last 15 years? I, I do. But now the government has a playbook to handle that. They'll just get swallowed up by a larger bank. The depositors will be safe. I mean, there's going to be Unless interest rates come down a lot, there's going to be a lot of foreclosures in commercial real estate, and it'll probably take out a few banks, as you said. But they're, you know, the big banks are too big to fail, and that's how they're going to handle it. So, if you are advising a client on kind of the right strategy within the housing market throughout the next cycle, let's say we're kind of at a trough or nearing a trough or just past a trough, whatever it is, you know, where would you encourage somebody who wants to play? their hand in the housing markets to focus their energy? I think I know the answer, but you know, enlighten us. Well, it's just be smart and not take too much risk, which is really what, the, what everybody is doing. So people that are buying land to build homes on them are, getting, are optioning it from the farmer or getting a professional company to take on the risk as a land banker. But the land bankers are pretty smart and they're structuring those deals wisely too. So it seem, seems like everybody's behaving as if they know there's another shoe to drop. And at the same time, they've been taking the current success and paying down their debts and getting in great shape. And I, I do think that's the right thing to do. The, the rental guys, some of them are continuing to go forward saying, I'm in this for the long term and I can buy something in a five or six cap. But most people would have to borrow an eight or nine today and would not buy something at a five or six cap. So their their pencils are down for the most part uh, right now, which I think is smart. For our listeners that follow you on LinkedIn, you put out a lot of great content and share you know, snippets of your research that uh, you make available to everybody. Obviously, the good stuff, I'm sure, only goes to your clients. But one of the things I saw was a fear and greed survey you know, what are you looking to measure there? The, the name obviously caught me as uh, as very uh, apropos for the current environment. Yeah, we 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 do so many surveys I can't even count them anymore. We, every time there is some data that's missing, we try to figure out how to get it. And I mean, you asked me what my outlook is, and I shared what my clients are. I'm I'm trying to come up with an index for how much fear and greed does the industry have right now. Well, we had the, the CEO of Brookfield at our event in 2019. The greed was unbelievable because he said wisely, everything that yields cash right now has got to go up in value because he's getting 
billions and billions and billions of dollars given to him, say, would you go buy something that yields cash? You know, that was clearly a, a greedy time in the market. I'm sure he did it wisely. Now it's the exact opposite. And I wished I'd had an index for this the whole time. So we, we just launched our first one with CRE Daily. And, you know, it'll be a great indicator going forward. Uh, I think it's also a great indicator for construction, Brendan. So we started an apartment developer survey really too, focused on what's the capital gonna do? Are you gonna build something this year or not? Because people look at job growth and other things and try to forecast development. It's really financial feasibility that matters. And so we're surveying on financial feasibility. Is this year you're gonna build or not? And that'll help us have a more accurate, particularly multifamily permit forecast which is hugely valuable to building products companies, for example. Imagine, imagine having to be a supplier to the apartment market and have your demand for your product go up and down and up and down and up and down. It's really tough. So we'll bring some stability to these businesses, I hope. I mean, to some extent, it has to be a little bit rear view. I mean, there's what people would like to do, and then there's what people, what the markets enable them to do. I mean, one of the big trends that we see is there's just tremendous amount of capital or cash in the system with the largest institutional owners. But because there's no financing, I think you alluded to it earlier, a lot of these deals can't pencil. And so, you know, when we talk to our clients who, you know, are vertically integrated, especially in multifamily or, or our clients that do SFR or BTR, it, a lot of what we're hearing is it's pencils down, right? I mean, is that kind of what you're seeing through the initial data? Or are you seeing the data tell a different story? No, that's the majority of what we're seeing, but not everybody's pencil is down. Life insurance companies are starting to fill some of the void there. There's some private lenders that are doing some more high-yield things. Some of the huge companies right now are buying anyway. Like, I, I, you know, I'm trying to get more efficient in Houston, and if you've got 500 homes in Houston, that's going to help my overall operations there, so I'll buy it. So we are seeing some things getting done. Yeah, interesting. Well, John, I know there's a lot more we could talk about, um, but our time today is is pretty limited. If people want to reach out to you or they want to learn more about your research practice or how to become a client to get access to your research, what's the best way for them to do that? Our website is jbrec.com. There's a lot of information there. and I promise you we'll do a good job because that's, that's what we come to work every day to do. Well, I've had the pleasure of knowing you and many of your colleagues for, for quite a while. And uh, I can say that your clients speak extraordinarily highly of you. So if anybody is interested, I do encourage you to reach out. And it'll be interesting to have this kind of time-stamped episode in November of 2023 to see kind of how some of our predictions and anticipations play out over the coming weeks and months and years. I mean, things are moving extraordinarily fast right now. And so I think only time will tell, but I appreciate you joining me today to share your insights on the housing markets. And uh, I look forward to keeping in touch and seeing how things evolve over the coming quarters and years. Same with you, Brandon. Thanks, John. Take care. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate the distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.